and welcome back to the Power Politics podcast with me, Christopher Egan. Today, I'm going to be introduced, uh, um, interviewing someone um, I met a, a while back, actually, uh, called Zubair Kazi. Now, Zubair's um, probably one of the smartest people I've ever met. He's a polymath with interests in politics, philosophy, um, maths, and he's going to be answering a few of my questions um, today. So we're going to get started off on one of my favorite topics, uh, which is democracy. So Zubair, my first question to you is, do you believe democracy to be in decline across the world? And if so, why? Okay, so in terms of why you would even ask this question to begin with, the reason why I would say that it's become so much of a contention now is that and the fact that we're actually able to ask this question is that we're not actually procedurally outside of democracy. But what the issue seems to be broadly is that procedurally what we, or what many thought should not have been able to happen democratically has actually happened. Because I mean, if Trump never exists and we, we continue with our kind of establishment, you know, establishment politics, I mean, does any, I mean, did this question emerge? Do we, are we worried? So like, um, but then there's the, you know, the far right in Germany for getting some, then there's Bolsonaro in Brazil and then Trump in the United States. And then these people get elected democratically, but behave in a way that is undemocratic. Now, what that specifically refers to is, uh, or how we would specifically measure, you know, what would be undemocratic would be uh, an over-reliance you know, on executive authority to actually make decisions, right? So, let's say, for example, um, in relation to the border wall, right? It's one of the things he wants to do. It's, you know, it's one of his big policy points when he's, I mean, if you want to call it policy, when, when he's running. And then the means of its implementation is by executive order, right? And then, you know, there was protests, you know, early this year. The means by which he, he actually handled it, right? He sends in the National Guard. Now that, that isn't technically illegal, right? Neither of these are technically illegal. But you see a significant executive decision, decision making to actually implement what would be you know, quite partisan policy, right? Yeah. yeah. And that, that specifically is, is the way I, I, I would say that you, I mean, that your question becomes relevant or why you start to say, you know, is, um, is that, does that make sense? Yes. So, due to the speed and the danger of a pandemic, have been forced to assume emergency powers, um, enabling them to um, lock down effectively and, and respond to the pandemic in the most efficient fashion. Do you think that, um, you know, so uh, examples of this can be found in Sri Lanka, uh, Russia, say, you know, Putin has just rigged an election that allows him to run for another six years and extending his power effectively. Do you think this is something that's happening in Western democracies as well? Okay, so what I'd say is that what what is necessary in relation to this pandemic for democratic nation states, you know, in principle, or we formalize in principle as the level of intervention that is being required, right, is essentially a norm right, the states that you mentioned. Yeah. Now, given that the extremal nature of the situation, you know, they've been, you know, they've been forced into it. And, and if this were continually the norm, then this is, you know, this is where we would stay. We'd continuously be socialized. But I mean, let's talk about the specific, um, you know, functions uh, of democratic nations. I mean, this is why we're having so much, I mean, so many issues, at least, I mean, if you believe, to begin with, that, you know, this lockdown is justified. Um, that insofar as people in, in, in the states that you mentioned either see what the state enforces with the power that it is given as legitimate, or they cannot do anything about it, right? Yeah. This lockdown would actually be able to function, right? On the other hand, in the US, um, in the UK, I mean, in, you know, in the Western democracies, I mean, there's I mean, a distribution about the extent to which people are willing to fix them, the exception of it, right? Um, you have this issue where 
this isn't, I mean, this is by substantial portion of the populations um, seen as illegitimate. And yet, um, and yet, I mean, states are essentially being forced into doing it. Um, but you know that, I mean, that does bring up an interesting point, which is that, I mean, given that in principle, democratic nations, it's the states can actually intervene without, you know, the citizenry broadly necessarily uh, consenting to it, whatever that would even look like, however you would even, you know, aggregate that preference and then translate it. Then the fact that they're able to do this, what does this imply about, you know, the very nature of the, of, of the democratic state in general? Right? I mean, yeah. perhaps you can say, it's, you know, that the separation of powers in general will, um, you know, will keep, I mean, we'll keep power uh, and you know, checks and balances, we'll keep power distributed and it will not consolidate. But in this specific case, because, you know, of the, of the nature of this, of this situation, everyone's come to converge. You know, perhaps you can say that, and perhaps in this sense, it would be most efficient if the, uh, if the democratic nation states had an infrastructure uh, pre-existent that would facilitate, you know, the kind of intervention that they are taking, which they don't, right? Which the nations that you were mentioning, mentioning can't, but because of, we know what is transitive to that kind of interventional power, right? Yeah. Such as, I mean, what you mentioned in terms of election interference, right? Or like the literal control of information in certain states. What is transitive to it, you know, when you're not in the middle of a pandemic, that is never something that would be seen as legitimate in a democratic nation state. Does that make sense? Yeah. Okay, so let's take let's take a look at um, transitions of power during pandemics. You know, the vast majority of these um, sort of, as I've, as I've been sort of mentioning, the competitive authoritarian states like Russia, uh, Sri Lanka, um, uh, was it Hong Kong, have been postponing their elections. Um, which, which in Hong Kong particularly has meant that pro-democracy activists are, un, are unlikely to win uh, this year, which we were expected to. Uh, as I said, mentioned earlier, Putin was able to extend his six-year term. Right. And, uh, in Sri Lanka, um, what happened was uh, basically uh, the president, um, what did he do? He, he, uh, he dissolved the opposition-held parliament, which meant that uh, uh, elections were postponed until August, meaning that he could basically rule by decree for six months. Do you think that this sort of pattern in authoritarian states might provide, a, I know this is highly tenuous, but maybe a danger to the US election itself? Because, you know, obviously South Korea is one example where voting and, and, and democracy, uh, democratic elections and due process have been able to keep secure. But do you think there are, there is a possibility that the election this year, uh, coming in, a, in you know a few weeks, might be altered by a pandemic in effects that are anti, explicitly anti-democratic. In the United States. Yes. I mean, but, but the thing is that in terms of in terms of uh, whether there's something anti-democratic in relation to the United States election, I mean, you don't have to go to whether. I mean, the coronavirus itself is generating it because President Trump has already found a reason. I mean, you can disagree with this. Um, but, you know, mail-in ballots due to the pandemic, right? If that is a basis on which you can not accept an election to be uh, legitimate, which is, you know, uh, a room he's kept open for himself, right? Uh, then, I mean, yeah, you can see but that would be something that would be based on an individual decision making, not something broad. So were you specifically referring to uh, state behavior or were you referring to like broad uh, social sentiments and opinions well, I, I was, in relation to democracy? In relation to democracy, I was, I was uh, referencing the broad, so the broad social signals. I mean, on the one hand, as I said, because of the illegitimacy by substantial portions of the population in the United States, if we were to take this as an example, um, against a lockdown itself, they could, 
you know, see that as undemocratic, but in relation to the election specifically. No, no, I, I, I wouldn't say that anyone is specifically, um, or, or at least, you know, in the broad social generalities are, are looking to oppose democracy specifically. But, I mean, it seems like, at least on the right, they would be, I, I mean, if it were so that Trump did bring up the reason of mail-in ballots to delegitimize the election. It, I mean, it, it's not a remote possibility that it basically is with him. I mean, you can you can frame that as undemocratic. But um, you know, Trump. But that's self-justifying behavior. Trump saying Sorry? he's going to run for a third term is in itself anti-democratic. No. So in that sense, groups that rally. Well, no, but I was saying with respect to with respect to. Um, but that would be with respect to Trump. But with respect to people accepting it in general, I think that, I mean, because he's not actually going to end up running for the third term. That's not, I mean, that's not formally possible. But um, if he actually did something undemocratic in the sense of, and you know, and, and because that is something he could, I mean, in certain, if you consider some practicalities, he could do, which is just you know, stay in office. Um, you, I could definitely see uh, his base or what he's, strictly still has remaining of it, um, seeing it as legitimate. Okay. So you expect a peaceful transition of power like most people do uh, in January, assuming that Biden wins? No, I don't know necessarily. And I, I, I would say the Trump campaign themselves are trying to avoid the question because um, I mean, that's why they're still trying at, at, at this part of the race, because I mean, a couple of things are interesting, uh, which is that, uh, of course, right before uh, 2016, uh, finally, you know, uh, until election day, a few days before election day, there was the shock of Comey reopening investigations into uh, Clinton, right? And you can see that what the Trump campaign seems to be doing is trying to generate something analogous uh, to that effect with the, uh, you know, with this Hunter Biden controversy, which is just noise itself trying to be construed as, you know, something material, right? Some, so you can see that, I mean, they're still, they're still trying uh, to win this election. And then another, another interesting point, which was if you look at the last debate, um, the rhetoric of Trump has actually changed in ways that I, I don't see many people giving um, the credit for, which is that he specifically seems to be uh, I mean, appealing, I mean, no longer strictly to his base. He's no longer, I mean, it's quite a shift from the first debate to begin with, which is that he's not strictly, you know, attacking Biden with these, um, with, I mean, any kinds of personal attacks per se. Um, and you know, it is true that the fact that, I mean, it is a big deal that you know, his mic was cut off, um, given that a lot of, I mean, many of his good lines, at least from the 2016 election, came from you know, him interrupting or saying things, well, I mean, when it wasn't formally his turn. This, I mean, this significantly harms the ways in which he manifests his charisma. But um, a couple, uh, two points he said that were interesting to me was that, First, he said that before the actual crisis, you know, we were we were successful and we reunited, which is something he's really never appealed to. He does not appeal to unity a lot, right? But he says that before the crisis, uh, we reunited. That after the crisis, we will in fact, you know, once again be united, right? So, so that to me sounded like him trying to appeal to seemingly marginal moderates of sorts, um, at least, you know, in, in, uh, in states like Florida, where it, it's still, it's still quite, you know, on the margin. Right? Um, and it seems to me that he really is trying to avoid the question of delegitimizing the election by, you know, playing all the cards he can, right? Okay. 
Um, okay. But I think that that's definitely a possibility. I think from a personal perspective, it seems that, you know, the mic really was, uh, the mic, uh, um, you know, silencing really was a straitjacket on him. But at the same time, right. this appeal to moderacy, it's so, uh, so devolved from his previous rhetoric that you could say that this Trump campaign is almost in its death throes. It, it's, tr it's just throwing things out there to see what sticks. And I think that, right. you know, right. the, economist, yeah. the Economist predicted, um, I think as of today, that Biden has a 93% chance of winning, right? I think right. when, you, when you attach attach um, the Hillary Clinton election to- And we should just throw as a disclaimer that these are models accounting for the errors in the models. Um, it's true. And they should... 2016 election, you know, 538, the Huffington Post, the NYT, etc. Yeah. yeah, but the difference between Hunter Biden and, and this is what you said, the Hunter Biden and the Hillary Clinton, is that Hunter Biden's, cla these claims made about him are just, in, they're not credible, really. It, right. it, it just seems very, right. It's, right. It's, it's, it's almost like the Teflon has almost shifted to Biden on this one. Right. And, and I think at this point, it, you could almost say for sure that the American election is going into the hands of Biden. Uh, it, right. I, I honestly, unless Trump wins Florida, which he's trying to do, I think right. you could consider the election to be too little too late. But I know, I, I know um, uh, this. Yes, this is why, I mean, this is why they were trying to construe something so outrageous as, you know, child pornography on, on Hunter Biden's laptop, right? Even though, I mean, that wasn't an allegation. I mean, in certain writings, because you can see that it mentions that in the title, even though it's just an allegation and tries to use the fact that it's an allegation as a basis for, you know, a reaction. Yeah. Um, by which one would seemingly make a political decision, it seems. And, but and that, that's the yeah. other interesting thing is that Biden, you know, in a way, you can say, yes, he's been an uneventful vice president, but that's really, I mean, in terms of his vice presidency, not, um, you know, what he's done earlier in his career. But his, perhaps his uneventfulness in ways that actually helped him because it doesn't give him material to attack, right? You know, Benghazi and Hillary's email, and what are those two? Those two things are from her personal history that were consequential, right? He hasn't had the history. There isn't much material there. Yeah. Um, you know, it, it, I think you're completely right in saying that, you know, when Trump said, um, oh, you know, uh, you'd be in jail to Hillary, it's stuck because Hillary was had that history where she was seen to be by American population a bit dodgy. Biden has been, you know, he's been quite neutral for most of his career. And I think that's, that's what's helped him most. Trump thrives off, I think Trump thrives off generating hate for the other candidate. That is his, um, I think that's his election tactic. And it's what he did so effectively with Hillary. But I think on this one, there's such little substance that Trump, Trump is, Trump doesn't have the, the opportunity to say, well, I might be bad, but he's way worse on this one. But, but you see, that's what, that's what interests me, is that that is essentially what he was ultimately forced to do in the last debate, which is that, you know, I never would have run if you and Barack had done a good job. That is such an extremely moderate statement for him to make, right? Yeah. That they were, it is almost as if they had the same ends, right? Yeah. But, you know, so yeah, there's, there, Biden's, Biden is a different character than one that Trump would actually be able to attack. Um, and, and you, you know, that's really analogous to his relation to the pandemic itself, which is that, uh, I mean, much of what Trump has done materially has been a consequence of, you know, how you can vaguely construe, you know, some policy decision to the words of his rhetoric, right? to the very simple words of his rhetoric, right? But the thing like the pandemic, it isn't, I mean, it, it's, it's inherently indeterministic, right? I mean, the fact that it shouldn't even, I mean, it's perhaps a fallacy to even think that uh, it's something we can handle to begin with, right? It's something, it's something so out there. It's you know, pure stochasticity, pure stochasticity to begin with, right? Yeah, no one expects This isn't something that is conducive to, you know, his, his objectification by rhetoric and then manipulating how he wants. You know, he, he can't, he actually can't bully a pandemic. So, I mean, it seems like a perfect storm for him. I mean, at least in terms of Biden and, and the pandemic. Yeah, and I think when you have, when you have, if you look at New Zealand, right, they dealt with the pandemic brilliantly. Uh, then you have, you know, a, a, an ailing 
Jacinda Ardern administration suddenly revitalized right. into a landslide. The opposite side right. in the States. Yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah. And so the advantage um, shifts widely. But, you know, what could... Yeah, but you know, the thing is, the thing that's interesting is that you don't actually know necessarily the difference in, you know, the initial conditions and, you know, the distribution of the cases. And, you know, it does help the more control state has, um, you know, at least on information and infrastructure to control individuals that they find out, you know, how to effectively institute a lockdown, you know, local lockdown to stop cases. But that's what makes Trump's handling of this so dangerous is that he believed in some sense that he would, I mean, he would have been able to just blow this away. And he hasn't. And he hedged, um, he depended on the fact that this would just go away and it never did. Um, yeah, I think because if, if the pandemic didn't happen, it would be, I mean, we, we, we'd be having a very different conversation right now. Yeah. And I think. If we look at Trumponomics versus Bidenomics, um, you could make probably convincing arguments for both. But do you, what do you foresee? Maybe I know this is conjecture and it's not very empirical. But what could you see happening in the next eight days that shifts the election to Trump? What could happen? That That's an interesting question. Because I mean, I think that. It would have to be something so shocking, um, and indeterminate. How to be completely inconsistent with with uh, with what we know to be Biden? But I mean, it could be a whole variety of things. I mean, the child pornography could be legitimate, and Biden could somehow be connected to it. But you see how you know how ludicrous this is. Um, and the thing is that, of course, these kinds of conspiracies are what the right itself believes, right? Or at least it's been shown that. Uh, the right believes a significant amount of the QAnon conspiracy theories, um, at least, and, and I reference the right here, I mean, which aren't exactly substitutes, but I don't think, uh, it is unlikely that you'll have something credible enough to, to shift it that dramatically, but it would have to be something that was a pure shock. That, I mean, that would be the thing that the polls can't predict. It, I mean, but you understand how indeterministic that is. That isn't something. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, something Biden did yeah. once is involved in once, etc., etc. Uh, but I, I still find it interesting to wonder what, you know, what could happen because at this point it's almost nothing. Uh, I think you know, even the email scandal on the level that Hillary had, I think even that might not stick at this point because. No, but that itself was not particularly substantial. But you yeah. see, that itself was not particularly substantial to begin with. It was substantiated by the fact that Comey actually opened an investigation into it, right? That's what gave it materi materiality. Ultimately, there was nothing there. But do you, but, do you disagree with the FBI in that case, intervening in that, in that situation? Was it a political move, could you say, an, an October surprise that should not have happened or should at least have been delayed until after it was politically sensitive to do so? I mean, I'm not sure that I'm not sure this becomes more than some kind of analog of a, a of a trolley problem for Comey. I mean, if you're asking whether in that situation he should have made the decision or not, I'm not sure that there was necessarily even a right decision uh, to make. But insofar as, um, because I mean, it's it's a probability of Comey thinking he will find something against the probability that he will find nothing, and this will affect the opinions of people in the election. I count. Make a judgment, please. I mean, uh, insofar as I cannot actually know what Comey was thinking uh, with respect to whether he would find something, um, uh, that I mean that it was right or wrong. Um, but given that, that you no, know, the question is that given that there was nothing there, yeah, should he? I mean, should he have known better, right? Because yeah. I mean, perhaps that was the scare. Um, but but that is the past now. Um, but uh, the thing is that if we were to come, sorry, go ahead. Yeah, I think it's almost irrelevant because the past is the past, and what we should be talking about is the present. What what the more uh, contemporary uh, one might say conversation is about is whether Trump is right to um, oppose Coney Barrett to the Supreme Court in this instance. 
I think that uh, I okay. See, the thing is, that this is much more of a. I mean, this is another one of the issues where you either you know stand by principle or you can go by procedure. I mean, we know that Lindsey Graham is quite blatantly contradicting himself um, in in uh, naturally going through with this. Um, and this does have to do with you know what you were saying about where the question you brought up about you know, the decline of democracy in here. Um, I mean, there seem to be a breakdown in the separation of powers. Uh, because if, if I'm de facto at least the de facto at least the Senate becomes an arm of of the president. Sorry, go ahead. If I'm going to comment on the um, you know Joe Biden talking about packing us in Supreme Court, um, Democrats opposing um, Democrats opposing the nomination of Coney Barrett, I actually I look at it from someone who. I, I, if I were an American, I would vote for Biden, I think. But in terms of um, constitutionality and all the rest of it, I find that actually Trump is well within its rights, within his rights to appoint Coney Barrett. The reason that it... That's, right. That's what I said. It's procedurally fine. But it's procedurally completely fine. But the Democrat, I think, personally, the Democrat... Um, attempt or you know they're vowing to pack the supreme court is fundamentally flawed because it goes against a lot of what the constitution of the united states aims to do if the democrats um but you see can i can i say something there though before before you continue i would say that that is the level at which people um certainly on the left i mean the existence of aoc and i mean though you can say that in many ways her her acceptance is marginal in so far as, you know, if you look at how much of uh, the primary she won, et cetera. But you can see that that is the level, um, the level, I mean, with respect to the legitimacy of packing the court. So that is a level at which people are willing to question uh, what has been institutionally developed, right? right? Because, I mean, even, you know, the electoral college, that's been the means by which so many presidents have been elected, right? Yeah. Um, and insofar as there were contradictions between that and uh, the popular vote, I mean, do we now delegitimize those elections? But that is, these are the questions that people are willing to ask at this point. So the question about consistency with respect to historical principle, I think that's broken down significantly um, on the left and in a different way on the right. I but mean, I don't think that will be an acceptable basis anymore. A reason why I get a little bit um, worked up about this particular issue is that I find that most of the Democrats know that packing the Supreme Court, I think, is immoral. They know that if Democrats say Joe Biden wins... But immoral with respect to what? Well, immoral in respect to respecting Constitution and the system of checks and balances that's been in place. But that's what I'm saying, though. That's what I'm saying, though. They don't... At a certain point, you're going to stop caring about that insofar as it doesn't give you the outcome that you believe is, you know, being structurally reinforced by a status quo. But that's um, exactly the same argument made by, say, the Peronists in Argentina. Why, you know, what they want to create meaningful change, so they then pack their own Supreme Courts. I, I'm sorry, but I've seen this. I've seen this happen in so many different places where it becomes clear to me that as soon as one party, be it on the left wing or the right wing, says the only way to create change is to change the Supreme Court or change an independent judiciary body, then it becomes dangerous. If, if the Democrats win the House, they win the Senate, and they win uh, the presidency, right? That's two of the three. There is, there is zero doubt. There is zero doubt that this is extremely dangerous. There is zero doubt that the increasing sensitivity of, uh, of the government structure to the population is itself conducive, you know? To instability and so far as it both implies that you know there can be pretty substantial changes very quickly i mean even though that's specifically what the united states is uh, is supposed to prevent i mean that's why you know that's the republican structure yeah, um, that exists on there. That You're, we're supposed to be difficult to change if you don't if they so act to be in court you get you win all three yeah and there's no check and balance on it and the thing is, is that right. while Democrats might right. purport to be the more, one might argue, the more enlightened uh, uh, class or the more uh, modern uh, party, if you suddenly then Democrats win all three and the third, 
um, limb being won by force, effectively, you know, what, there's no principle in that. I think the historical president has to I don't be think, I don't, but I, Biden no, but I don't think that that's what, yes, but I don't think that's what people are appealing to for, for, for a notion of legitimacy anymore. Because, I mean, what, what I was saying is that this is a strategic mistake. This could, or at least could be a strategic mistake insofar as you empower the state with certain, uh, uh, with certain, I mean, authorities, you legitimize certain capabilities. And then you're no longer the party in power, then what happens, right? Because, I mean, that's the strategic issue, right? The reason why, I mean, the reason why uh, factionalism is good is because we have, you know, intersections. We actually have intersections amongst different groups such that, you know, and, and the fact that they know that, you know, I could not, I could be in power or I'm not in power now. This creates a stability about the extent to which they are willing to act when they're not in power and when they are, right? And that's what you break down. And that's what creates the volatility. So strategically, it's a mistake. And I think strategically, that makes a consideration. But I don't think they'd make a consideration based on principle, historically, because I just don't see that as a parameter for legitimacy. Of sense. I mean, this isn't a, I mean, this isn't a moral commentary. This is just by which, uh, I mean, just what it has come to be and substantially accentuated since, um, since 2016. Yeah, I, I think that's the real danger that you've highlighted so aptly there is that principle both from the left and the right has just got thrown out the window and it is now I think the most dangerous thing is that it's all based on who's in power and what they do in power. I think the Democrats were good in restraining Trump, he couldn't get much through, especially the border wall stuff, but again I think it is it would be highly hypocritical if or not even hypocritical, just highly, again, I said immoral, if, if, if the Democrats packed a court. And because you know, you don't, they could change, yes, they could change America, but it just sets a precedent, doesn't it? You know, for Republicans, next time they get in power, with a landslide to pack their screen. But I'm saying, when you say immoral, though, when you say immoral, who, I mean, it's a question of, because, I mean, this is ultimately, you can say it boils down, you know, to interest. If no one is interested in your notion of morality, what was the use of your notion of morality? If that, I mean, if the matter is a matter of principle is broken down, I mean, but, but I mean, just think of, um, I just, I, mean, I, I could use AFC as an extreme example, but you can, you can see what, what extremes that we are able to now rather normally consider uh, discursively have become. I mean, we're really, I mean, and the, the meta level at which we're willing to criticize, or the left is willing to criticize. Uh, the teleology of, of government of, of power structures, right? Yeah. I, I, that that in itself tells me that I mean you could say yes, it is immoral, but I don't think it's, it's useful anymore to use that notion of morality. Um, so, you know, following on from that, uh, Zubair, do you think that the American government setup of checks and balances in the tripartite structure, do you think it's been undermined by Trump? And from that, do you think it's to be flawed because of this? I, I think that the, the tripartite structure is inherently, I mean, it's, it's about um, actual content without people actually making uh, decisions. Um, what you have um, is in a de facto sense, uh, the breakdown. Um, of the separation of powers in terms of, um, and this is arguable that the Senate being a de facto arm of, of the executive um, with respect to, for example, impeachment or with respect to the ease by which, I mean, the Senate is willing to support him. I mean, suppose, suppose uh, Graham was acting on principle. I mean, I can say, do you think that Graham would not have made a decision um, to elect a Supreme Court justice um, if, if, you know, if there was a Republican president be consistent with what said in relation to Obama, do you think that would happen? Because I think that's very illustrative of the fact that what we're seeing and what we would characterize as authoritarian um, is actually, I mean, it's technically legal. I mean, the, again, the intervention um, during the protest, while seen as authoritarian by many, um, is, you know, in ways technically legal, though you can say that 
you know, there were violations by uh, the DHS and DHS and so on. Um, but that isn't, you know, so outside the bounds of what is legal. All of this happens in what is technically legal, but there's a de facto sense in which all of this seems uh, to be, you know, authoritarian in a way that should be constrainable, but isn't. Does that make sense? If this isn't something that the tripartite structure accounts for, um, and this is, I mean, this is the extreme of, of what the executive can do. And there doesn't seem to be, I mean, it's the same with uh, unilateral decision to enter a war. I mean, what, what's Congress going to do if the president decides uh, to make that decision? I mean, this is uh, similar to what happened with, um, with Bush's decision in Iraq, that that was different because there was a pretext for that. Um, but when such a thing happens, what can Congress really do to constrain you know, this unilateral decision making by the president? So insofar as this just doesn't exist, isn't constrained, I mean, what you define as flawed because in a way it's inherently flawed insofar as it can't actually constrain all which it would desire to of the president. But you can see that in what we would definitely not like to see from the executive in terms of the exercise of power, we do see. Okay. So does that make sense? Yeah, it it does. So, do you think is there a better is there? A better when I say we, I'm generally referring just to just clarify the thing. When I say we, I'm generally referring to like a certain social generality, which would have that opinion, not necessarily specific. Yeah, yeah, yeah sure, that's, that's fine. But is there a better system? Do you think that uh, the US would be benefited by a more UK-style system or a more proportional representation, you know, system of government that could, and in addition to changes with the bicameral structure um, in the, into maybe a New Zealand-style unicameral one? Do you think that there needs to be changes in that regard? Or, or do you think that the American uh, system of government, government can keep pottering on? I think, I, I'm not sure if theoretical questions of this nature are relevant insofar as what both sides of the political extreme want is kind of a sole, uh, I mean, because I wouldn't even see where such change would even begin to originate from, right? Because what happened with the United States, what, you know, the, the, plans, the plans for how the constitution would be designed came, right? You know, we had the Federalist Papers um, and, you know, they were passed, they were given, and that's what we go on with. Um, I mean, there isn't much to be said about redesigning that, right? But and, and we just stick with it. And now, especially, I'd say is that I don't think anyone wants moderation because I mean, they were trying not to be, they were not trying to construe it one way or the other at the founding, right? Specifically, right? I don't think anyone can think in terms of that. Everyone would kind of look at this government structure we have as a kind of you know, constraint function by which they can optimize their outcomes and just use it however they want to maximize their own, which, you know, which can be strategically dangerous, as I iterated earlier. But uh, yeah, I, I, I'm not sure that. I'm not sure I could see a context in which that question would yeah, emerge and actually be constitutional. There's no context where constitutional change is necessary because ultimately I think, you know, the United States as a democracy is secure enough that you, d you don't need to change the constitution like you would in Russia, for example, but by, uh, by leading politicians, of course, and say the only place where you could kind of you kind of hear about changing constitution now is Trump saying, you know, we're going to get a third term, which is mostly hot air. Um, but I, I was sort of like, uh, slightly I mean, he also said ludicrous things like we're going to, I mean, he, like he directly contradicts the Supreme Court when he says that, yeah, we're going to give people three years in prison for, you know, burning the American flag, et cetera, et cetera. And yeah, it, these are so absurd. But as, what do you, do you think, you know, I, I know this is slightly diverging, but what if assume Trump loses in um, in November, right? And it's an accepted right. result. Do you think that Republican Party will be then pushed to moderacy, or do you think it, they will be, you know, they will just appoint Pence as, you know, their next candidate? Where, where do you see the future of Republican Party? 
Actually, you know, this is something that I uh, used to have conversations with my economic teacher uh, quite a bit before. But it really does seem that given, um, you know, what I was mentioning about the Republican Party, or I, that, that would be more broadly, what I was saying about the Senate, is more broadly the Republican Party uh, becoming the Trump Party, you know, accepting uh, extremes like Mitt Romney. Given that it has become something that's given life by Trump, it will, it, I mean, it kind of, it, yeah, I suppose in a way it can just be like a fever dream and they all wake up and, uh, and then, you know, what is this new world? But it's, it's a new paradigm of, of operation for the Republican Party, at least at the level of appearance, you know? Because in Britain, we but, have you know, the Labour Party, right? So the Labour Party, yeah. Jeremy Corbyn was considered very extreme uh, in terms of his views, saying, you know, Venezuela right. wasn't all that bad. I've, I've had a, I've studied my bit fair bit about Venezuela. I know that's how completely wrong that is and how much a socialist project that was and how much it's collapsed. But then we had Keir Starmer, yeah. moderate and much more of a contentious, a possible leader come the next election. So do you think, do you think the same thing will happen there in, in just obviously... Could you reiterate what you just said? You cut out there for a bit. Uh, so do you think that the extreme will move, move to moderation just as the British have done? Because they'll realise, I think, as the British Labour Party did, that actually, yes, Jeremy Corbyn was too extreme. It was a little bit of a fever dream. The Corbynistas get purged. Maybe if you uh, transplant this onto the Republican Party, the hard Trumpers get purged from a party and suddenly you get a more moderate party. And suddenly the American... The thing is that what, are, what I'm saying is, I mean, where are these moderates? So it's almost as if Trump gave much of these people... I still Okay, so it seems that what has given the Republican Party much of its, uh, at least modern character, as we would even be able to you know, remember in recent memory, because you know before, uh, before 2016, it seems like, uh, I mean, for, for much of the political narrative now has begun there, um, but in terms of from then on, it seems, seems much, much of. Uh, the Republican Party being uh, created in the image of Trump, and that he's the focus of of, uh, of its value criteria, in 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 a way that is again de facto undermining of uh, the distribution of power. Uh, so I mean, because I, I don't see what substance the Republican Party has um, for voters. I mean, because okay, I mean, go go to what what, what Trump uh, would articulate as his successes. Go on to uh, go on to you know White House gov where it's all listed, and much of that is the economy restated in terms of a whole variety of proxies. You know, unemployment for a whole bunch of different categories. There isn't much substance beyond you know the economy and then you know, executive orders. There, there I mean, and this is what has become the character. Of, of the Republican Party, there just isn't substance. What, what independent substance do they have beyond? Because this is what I'm saying: that Trump could have been elected if, um, or the chances would have been much likelier if you know this pandemic hadn't happened. But that was just because you know there's this notion of continuous prosperity. There's this you know stationarity. There isn't a need for deviation. But insofar as you know there is a desire for change, what does the Republican Party have to offer? Well, maybe because it's not even like sorry, go ahead. maybe it's not so much about a desire for change. It's more about a desire for maintenance. If you look at, you know, uh, no, but what I was saying is that it is a it would have been a desire for maintenance if that's I mean, Trump came in on a desire for a specific type of change, but that was far more rhetorical than could ever be really substantive, and that's really what it's doing. Manufacturing jobs aren't coming back to the United States. It's true, but. It's also, he was also trying to prevent um, change. If you look at the border wall, anti-immigration is yes. a conservative policy because it stops people from coming yes. into the country and changing diversity, et cetera, et cetera. You know, in a sense, uh, the, his proposal to revamp the Midwest with loads of jobs and, and uh, make it a better economy, yeah, it happened naturally, but it, it is, it, it's not a new idea, is it? It's, it's, yeah, it's, it's proposing change, but 
it, there's no substance behind it, which I, I think is what you're saying. But the Republican Party, I, I can probably quite um, reasonably predict, is that it will shift, if it, if it were to shift back to moderates, you know, we see all these, like, Make America Great Again big rallies, but I think somewhere in there, the moderates who, you know, maybe voting Democrat this year might switch back to Republican, given um, a different style economic policy that's not based on rejuvenation, but based on maybe lower taxes or more reasonable um, legislation. I think that's where, you know, the pendulum is swinging back, as it were, and that's where you're going to win votes. I, I don't think the Republican Party is just... But they would seem... I don't, I, mean... I don't think their voter base is made up all of can you repeat the last sentence? I don't think their voter base, the Republican Party, now is made up of all red hatters. It doesn't, no, no, but I'm not making a comment about the nature of Republicans themselves because I don't, I mean, I don't actually believe that people. I mean, it's materially benefiting um, those that uh, elected Trump to actually keep immigrants out. It seems to me to be, you know, this is inside, but it seems to me to be a, a substitution of, you know, own economic insecurities, own alienation in, in their own mind. But this isn't materially helping them with respect to, because, I mean, people who, those who elected Trump, um, because he got a substantial portion of the vote of, you know, non-college educated you know, male white voters, but they weren't, they didn't vote for him for maintenance. Trump did not get elected to maintain something. Trump got elected to change. Yeah. Trump, I mean, it is a significant, I mean, because there's, I mean, which means that there's a material welfare difference that is expected, right? If, if, if they don't have, I mean, if they don't have this, I mean, then what, what do they, I mean, Yes, they can just go back to the you know the usual politics, you know, general anti-tax, and we're just going to maintain uh, the current civil rights standard, right? As they are, you know, as they were. But then that'll, I mean, that's who's that relevant for, right? Because I mean, the, the moderates. Yeah, I mean, are, are, when you say the moderates, do you mean those who have no issues and just are you know moderate conservatives that they just want the status quo? Yeah, but I see that as an increasingly decreasing population. I was more, maybe, maybe um, let's not look at the Republican Party as uh, guaranteeing material ideals. Maybe it's more to do with an ideology. No, yeah, but that's, that's what, I'm, what yeah. I'm saying is that it does have to do with material. I mean, when you promise jobs back, that's ultimately a, a material end, even though it, 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 the proxy is supposed to be, you know, the naturality of, of Mark. You know that's the ultimate failing, but there is an actual, there is an actual uh, material promise, and the American dream is still a promise, right? And if you, if that's what you consider yourself to be, electable on, then you're actually going to have to deliver on that at some point, especially when, it's so. I mean, especially when it's so unlikely that's going to happen now, because now specifically, now, when people ask for the American dream, who are non-college educated. Uh, white male voters. I mean, what's going to happen to them? They're, I mean, their jobs are the ones which are getting automated away. It's particularly a pathological situation for them, right? So, I mean, we're, uh, yes, you can, you can ideologize conservatism, but at a certain point, that's, that ceases to be relevant because we can ideologize a lot of things, right? Um, but at a certain point, it will cease to be relevant insofar as it has no material effect. And if that is what people ultimately want, then, I mean, then ideolo ideologization, is, I mean, is going to be irrelevant. Um, I mean, it's just going to be relevant this category. Okay, so I think maybe uh, if I if I to be slightly contrarian here, I, I'd argue that actually, when you when you go to places like Kentucky and Mississippi and really run down areas, Trump might be promising material change, but I think actually ideology for those people a conservative ideology is very very significant it doesn't it, increasing immigration realistically and trump's like effort to ban it won't have a, a, a material effect on them realistically 
those states, Kentucky uh, yeah. in particular, they haven't changed economically since Trump came in. There's been no material benefit, but I think they do. I think those people yes. there do attach themselves to an ideology. By watching Fox News and, yes. you know, and, and all of these sorts of going to these rallies, yes. they display their ideology, and that is a Trumpist ideology. And the point is, is that Trump's ideology is inherently uh, foreigner scope, uh, foreigner phobic. It's very, it's almost, some might say that it's, it's white supremacist. It's, uh, it has been interpreted as such. It must, some might say it's racist. And some might say that actually Trump's ideology isn't, isn't conservative anymore. It's right wing nationalism. And when you look at it from that view, yes, they are subscribing to a political ideology in the same way that Democrats uh, are subscribing to a political ideology yeah. of greater, you know, greater equality and, you know... Oh, wait, how are, those, how are those the same? How are those the same? But the point is, is that the ideology... I would I'm consider them, I would state. actually consider them... Can I... But I, I, if, I, if I'm just... mind if I just say one thing in relation to what you said? Okay, sure, go. Go ahead. Okay, so what I would say is that the ideologization, because I would have added this qualification, which is that the ideologization of something like uh, immigration, I mean, I would, because if you had asked me specifically about nationalism, I would have told you that these seem to be a tribal, this seem to be tribal affinity, a tribal affinity that is affirmed to a particular end that generally this affirmation has actually no effect for, right? Um, and I would say that these fundamentally emerge. This is why I mentioned uh, anti-immigration being a substitution for, you know, for personal insecurities. Um, is that I wouldn't consider this ideology to exist in itself in a vacuum. I consider it to be directly. I, I consider people, to be completely specific, to be prone to it, much more substantially given. Um, given their economic situation and given uh, the trajectory of their economic situation. Um, and, and I can recommend these in literature on this. You know, uh, what was it? A book, um, Strangers in Their Own Land. It was written after studies in one of the, uh, in one of these swing states about this kind of, you know, angry white voter, right? And it, it characterizes how I mean, how you see an association with downtroddenness locally into a kind of, you know, one that is anti, into an into action that manifests as what you are here characterizing specifically as ideology, as if in itself, which is what I would specifically disagree with because, you know, the anti-government sentiment, uh, like the anti-federal government sentiment, the anti-establishment sentiment, conspiracy, I would consider all of this to be a symptom of of more fundamental anxieties because I mean if, if, if this is all ideology what what does it actually what does it actually benefit I mean because it isn't directly benefiting anyone and I think I would I would think that eventually that is something that they would notice right if 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 wage stagnation continues I mean if it continues I mean because it's just a matter of time right I mean I would consider it just a matter of time well I think in response to that, you'd have to, if you, I understand that you're, you're basing um, political, you're making a link between political ideology and economic status, right? It will be angry right voter. Fine. But I think that actually, yes, it, it might be a symptom of their economic, you know, their economic uh, situation. Naturally, I think the South is much more poorer than, uh, uh, South and the center is much more poorer than the coast. And that has that has caused, I think, a little bit of resent uh, between the, the geographical uh, resent between uh, the two, the red and the red, you know, the red center and the white and the uh, blue edges, right? The point is, is that while you may consider the ideology a symptom, the fact of the matter is, is that it's still an ideology, no matter where it comes from. Ideology in itself is something that you subscribe to, no matter where you're. Uh, economic state. Sure. So right, right. And what I was telling you is that, yes, insofar as the Republicans can, can continue to facilitate the ideology, yes, they can. But where it ultimately becomes a matter of welfare, 
I don't see them. I don't see them having any coherent plan to deliver, because they're not bringing manufacturing jobs back. That's not going to happen. Yeah. Because ultimately, because I mean, when this goes full circle, it's not going to be about ideology. Because that's what I'm speaking about. The, that long term. So yes, this is locally ideological. But what I'm saying is that ultimately this will be besides the point. And with respect to that point, I don't see the Republicans with a plan because right now they're just facilitating rhetoric. That ultimately is back. They don't have a plan. That, that's my point. That I, don't, I don't think your angry white voter really cares whether Republicans have a ready-made plan for you know reviving Pennsylvania or reviving Kentucky. The point of matter is is that Republicans will keep peddling ideology because they know that you know for next let's say for the next four years Biden gets in. All the Republicans gonna, are, are going to do is peddle ideology so that people who will look at maybe say a Democrat failure and then Republicans will come in and say, look, our ideology would fix this or would be better than the Democrats. Because you're not, because people aren't as rational or as fact-minded anymore because of the way that politics is polarized, I think you'll find that ideology, even though it may be a symptom and, and Republicans you know, should move away from it, they won't do so. Because an ideology is I'm not saying the Republicans should move away from it. I'm saying that that's what they have currently facilitated. And if they continue to facilitate it, if this is all they're planning to go on, it's um, ultimately they will cease to be relevant. I mean, ultimately they will cease to be relevant. They will change character. So, I mean, something's going to change in how the Republican Party exists as it exists now, especially if Trump is gone. Because, I mean, if Trump stays, then we can have I mean, a whole extension because, I mean, ultimately, four years did pass. Nothing really happened, right? And people are still supporting. Uh, I mean, Trump still has much of his base, right? So, I mean, I would say that, I mean, that's just a delay in manifestation. Okay. This problem, I, I, I see, it will get, I mean, it will get worse. And okay. that will eventually, I mean, because I mean, ultimately where the problem is real, yeah. I mean, that's what ultimately matters. But now where, it, I mean, I'm not exactly telling you where this ultimacy is because I don't know. Yeah. But that is ultimately what will matter. And Republicans not orientating towards themselves, uh, orientating themselves towards that. I mean, this is just a directing itself for, you know, its own irrelevance. Because ultimately, so, I mean, rhetoric has to become something substantial. Yeah. Well, again, maybe one might say that if the, you know, obviously Republican, Republican Party might need to change, but if Democrats say win eight years, it, uh, it's a possibility. If Democrats win eight years, I think Republicans can safely peddle ideology. I mean, this is what I was saying, and I agree with you, um, but on, on this point, I think actually the Republicans will peddle ideology. You're cutting out a lot. Could you sorry. repeat? Uh, sorry, but I think that actually, if Democrats win for eight years, what you might find is Republicans peddle ideology so that every Democrat mistake is Republican victory. And in that sense, you won't get the healing uh, of the polarization that you, because it's, it's all an ideology and not on fact, like it is kind of now, I think. I mean, you know, I, I just think the rise of fake Wait, news- Wait, could you reiterate? I can't really hear you. Sorry, I, I might be cutting out slightly. But can you hear me now? Yes. If the, Repu if the Democrats win for eight years, the Republicans yes. can safely peddle ideology in, in the long term, because, which is for those eight years, because what you might find is that every Democrat mistake is a Republican victory. And then they can use that. Oh, so every, you know, as what, soon as what do you mean by every Democrat mistake yields a Republican victory? Well, say, say uh, Democrats try to um, implement Medicare, right? Okay. As soon as that begins, as soon as that process begins, it will be immediately become vilified and um, railed against by the Republican ideology. It won't be based on fact because I think from uh, an e economic and- Okay, sure, sure. Yeah, I mean, yeah, that would happen now too, okay. So that's, you know, what I'm saying is that when politics becomes devoid of fact, it just switches to ideology. And that's why I think that yes. 
that's why I think that ultimately Republicans will be based on ideology for the long term because they don't, in a way, they don't really... Well, what I'm telling you is that ultimately for the Republican voter, it isn't about ideology. And I don't know the term. I mean, you said eight years. I don't know the term. But there will be a term at which them peddling the ideology in the way that Trump is now is not going to be sufficient anymore. I don't know when that is. That could be... I mean, it's very complicated. We're talking about an extremely reductive terms. But it's going to, I mean, it's going to have to, I mean, because are you suggesting that this can continue at infinitum? I mean, if, if it were so, then Trump wouldn't have needed to be elected. We could have had the same establishment Republicans come. And I mean, I mean, because what specifically made Trump different from the establishment Republicans is, is this process, is this, I mean, he appealed to something that was within a substantial amount of the population. I mean, that Hillary certainly failed to do, which helped. And ultimately, he, I mean, his victory was not like, you know, it wasn't extremely substantial or anything. But he did get a substantial segment of the population. And what I'm telling you is that that had to do with an actual um, positive state of affairs for okay. individuals. And that, to that, I don't see a plan but ideology can always work as a substitution insofar as the material, I mean, isn't there because, but ultimately it's going to be a matter of material welfare. I mean, okay. when that is, I do not know. Okay, I think uh, that's, thank you so much to bear. I mean, that's uh, all we've got time for today. Uh, thank you guys so much for listening and uh, we'll be with you next time. Thank you.